Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first segment of today's show, I'll be talking with Connecticut-based filmmaker Mike Rhodes. Mike is a writer, director, cinematographer, and editor who's worked on a variety of projects, both in and outside of the state, from music videos for Toronto DJs to promotional videos for New Haven humanist art. We'll talk with Mike about his background making movies, any current and future projects, as well as about some challenges and benefits of being a Connecticut-based filmmaker. For the second segment of today's show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman for a discussion of Money Monster, the new high-concept drama by Jodie Foster that imagines the television studio of a financial investment talk show held hostage by a young man fed up with Wall Street greed. Last year's The Big Short hit a critical and popular sweet spot, in its depiction of the people that brought you the Great Recession. We'll talk about whether Money Monster works on a similar level or trying, maybe failing, to do something entirely different. But first, very happy to welcome to the studio Mike Rhodes. Mike is a Connecticut-based writer, director, cinematographer, and editor. He's worked as a freelance filmmaker in a variety of capacities throughout the Northeast, working on corporate videos, short films, feature films, commercials, and documentaries. Some of his most recent work, including a number of music videos documenting a Rap and DJ scene in Toronto and Montreal are available online at vimeo.com slash who Mike Rhodes. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tom. Okay, so I've had a couple of kind of freelance filmmakers on the show before, and yeah. my kind of go-to first question is just how do you define what you do? When you think about your profession, when you're maybe pitching yourself to yeah. a potential client, um, or even just talking to a friend about what, what you do for them. How, how do you describe your work? Um, I always explain myself to other people as I'm a director because that's my main goal. I want to direct projects, um, whatever ca capacity that may be. Mm. Um, and when I was just editing, I was telling people that I was a director anyways. Um, and do people understand what that... Or, or maybe even if you say you're a director do you associate that word with any particular type of content are there particular subjects that you're most interested in directing stories about you're just saying this is my skill set and i'm right kind of up for hire um i just think that whatever project it may be i, I see what i want to be doing going forward and that is directing projects and if that means that i'm also filming or also editing um, or working in collaboration with other uh, directors of photography or with another editor. Um, I just, as far as my brand and the way when, when people hear my name, I want them to think, okay, he's a director, because that, that's what I want to do. Um, as far as being freelance and uh, working on a variety of skill sets, I try to kind of compartmentalize uh, the skill sets that I have. So I'm not getting paid exactly what i would like to in the future right now um as a director but i do bring uh certain rates that keep me afloat and uh help me as going forward with what i want to do as a director as far as uh working on somebody else's set as a cinematographer or taking on a project as an editor um or helping out with writing a treatment or a proposal so how long have you been working as a is, is freelance director an appropriate term? When I say you've been working as a freelance director, does that sound right to you? Or It does. And it's a, it's a little bit uh, of a stretch because I would say, um, for the most part, my freelance gigs that I'm getting are not as a director. When I'm directing mm -hmm. projects up until this, uh, more recently, I've been directing projects as a freelance director. So that would be correct. But for the most part, the projects that I've been producing and directing myself um, have pretty much been an investment of my own time and resources in collaboration with uh, other like-minded individuals, you know, kind of working towards the same goal. Uh, how do you come up with, and you, you say that what you're getting paid right now is not necessarily what you want to be getting paid right. going forward as a right. director or in any capacity on a film. And again, this is something that I you know, really love talking about with any kind of freelancer, yeah. but specifically freelance filmmakers, because coming up with a rate for yourself and being able yeah. to kind of put a specific value on the work that you do is really hard, particularly up front when you're trying to establish yourself as like a reputable service Absolutely. in the world. So, uh, 
kind of where um i don't know how how do you work through that problem do you have like an amount in mind that you want to get to or right now do you feel like you're in the place where you're still building up a name for yourself either in the state in the region you want to get to a certain reputation and then you can start yeah i don't know soliciting in a different way well it's funny because um no matter how talented i may think that i am or uh, the skill set that i may have uh you still need experience and film is a funny thing because you need to convince somebody to invest in you. You know, you're, people are paying for something that hasn't happened yet. Um, so they have to trust you on some sort of level and you have to have some sort of a portfolio that you could show people work and they say, Oh, this, this is pretty good. Even if it's not in the particular genre that you might do, be doing a project for that person. Um, so I, Basically, so far, I've looked at every single thing that I've done, whether it, whether it be a project that I wasn't particularly interested in or one that I absolutely loved. Um, I looked at it as, I'm going to put my name on this, and um, it's going to diversify my portfolio. So every single thing that I do with my energy and my time is reverting back to be able to one day command uh, the trust and respect of the people that I would like to invest in me. I know you've, you've worked on a diversity of kind of types of projects, whether they be documentaries, fiction films, yeah. uh, corporate videos, commercial videos, but also subjects. I mean, the kind of stories that you're telling that tend to be pretty different. I imagine depending on the client or the partner yeah. or whoever. Um, tell me about uh, some of those of types of projects that you have worked on maybe going back towards the beginning of yes your career so you you went to endicott college yes right in yes. massachusetts and you studied filmmaking there or communications? yeah uh, communications was uh broad scale mm -hmm. um and and the focus was media production uh filmmaking writing for the screen uh telecommunications the, all, all the history stuff you know things of that nature and tell me about some of the first kind of projects that came your way either while a student or soon after graduating well, how I got into this is uh, I, I was not one of the kids that was picking up a camera from a young age and stumbled upon that early. Um, I, I, the first thing I ever shot um, was probably my, my senior year of college. Um, and I went into school not, not thinking that film or anything like that was even an option. I went to school my first year as a business student because I figured if I'm going to go to college, I might as well figure out how to make some money. That's the whole point of going to college uh, for some. Um, and the, the great thing about Endicott College was they, they make you take internships. So I interned on the business side for a film company in Hartford called Motion Inc. Um, and that's where the, the, the closest thing to, to a mentor that I have is uh, the president of that company, uh, Glenn Orkin. And what he, kind of work did you do for well, missioning? He, he took me on as, as basically, uh, a production assistant. I was totally green. Didn't really know what I was doing. Probably wasn't much of a help, but I got a lot of insight into the process and enough to really think, okay, this is, this might be a career path. I like the creative field. It's pretty much film is a combination of everything. I like photography, theater, acting, uh, music. It's, it's just, uh, storytelling. I, I just thought it was great. So I switched my major. I was communications, uh, going into my sophomore year. Um, and from there I've just kind of been, uh, learning and, and developing. And when I got out of school, I didn't, I still didn't know what I was going to do, you know, cause there's not much of an industry, a film industry in Connecticut. Um, so I was kind of, you know, I, I was working a few odd jobs and then through a mutual friend, I met this kid named Dan Barron, um, who does marketing and branding at HP Communications. And he was um, work, working on like an independent artist label called Flyers, which became Tribe Worldwide. Um, and he had me edit one video for this artist, Jigs the Flyer. And uh, he was telling me, he was raving about this guy uh, to me. When, when we had a private conversation and I was kind of thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, you know, everyone's a rapper nowadays. Everyone has the SoundCloud link. I wasn't taking it too seriously. And they showed me the footage that they had shot in Toronto that I was to edit. And I was kind of blown away. I thought, you know, this kid, 
it was amazing. Um, so I edited the video. That was my first one, first real project ever. Um, and first really foray into the music industry, music business, whatever you want to call it. And after that, they liked it and they said, all right, you, you're coming with me. And was, that was kind of the spiral effect from there. So we should say, I mean, the kind of vast majority of the movies of yours that I watch in preparation for the interview, and I think that are on your Vimeo account, are uh, movies around a tribe worldwide, specifically yeah. around Jigs the Flyer. And yeah. I'd love to kind of dive into that scene a bit and, yes. and the movies that you've created around it. But was this... Um, was this a music scene that you were into, just a, a type of music even, that oh, you were into before? Abs I mean, this is kind of psychedelic rap and electronic music. I think it's kind of generally maybe the umbrella yeah. that it falls under, but yeah. these guys are all about um, kind of resisting traditional categories, yeah. especially for rappers. Um, tell me a bit about who Jigs the Flyer is and what this scene is like that you found in Toronto. Is it Toronto and Montreal or just Toronto? It's Toronto and Montreal. Um, Jigs himself is from Meriden and I kind of move around just the greater Hartford area in Connecticut uh, like a madman trying to, you know, network and just get involved with as many people as possible. Um, and he grew up with... Um, this artist uh, now known as Sharik Devante, who uh, relocated to Montreal, and they both ended up as, you know, hip in the hip-hop industry. Um, so childhood friends that split up and both ended up uh, rapping, and they kept in contact with each other through the beauty and the internet. And so that's kind of the first... I mean, Jigs was obviously taking tr uh, trips out to Canada uh, Toronto and Montreal before I'd even met him. Um, so he's the one that kind of brought me out there for the first time and set me up with the, that group of people. And, um, yeah, it, the, the way that he describes it is it, most hip hop, they say, uh, you know, there's a movement, this is da -da -da -da. um, but the way we like to describe it is really just a bunch of like-minded individuals coming together and it's a culture and the the point of a lot of the work that we've done and, and the way that I've tried to to work on the videos and, and portray these guys is just authentic mm. and gritty and kind of more documentary style because hip hop is so watered down with you know the girl the girl in the bikini standing in front of the rented uh, convertible and counting money and that's just there's none of that in any of our any of our stuff. Um, I, I I think that. I mean, I'm interested in talking with you about both kind of what makes for a successful music video, what you what you have in mind when you're yeah. shooting one of these songs, but just thinking for a minute more about this kind of this hip hop culture that you found mm -hmm. in Toronto, you've been documenting. I think it really speaks to your um, kind of filmmaking ability when I say that the the movies are so kind of of a piece with the music, like yeah. the way that they look. Yeah. The way that they're cut in particular, the, yeah. the very, the quick edits, the way it's edited, like with the beat, yeah. um, it really, it, it feels as if the music is kind of dictating the flow of the images. Is that something? And also I should say a lot of, That's um, awesome. I was in, I was listening to, a, um, <laughs> I was watching the, the opium fields, uh, yeah. movie that, that you guys put together for, um, for Rap Genius, right? Yeah. Which is this kind of 30 minute documentary about Jigs the Flyer. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about why he chose the name Opium Fields for one of his albums. And yeah. he says that he just thinks that the the image and the words just kind of ooze uh, coolness or ooze uh, dopeness. That was yeah. the word, of course. Yeah, right? yeah. So he's saying he, he just wants like dopeness just like flowing <laughs> from his veins. Just yeah. kind of a nice reverse of the usual like direction of opium. But um but I think the the images that you produce kind of ooze that same like dopeness in the way that he's trying to set in his music. So when you're when you're like working with these guys, are you thinking I'm adding uh, like the Mike Rhodes touch? I'm trying to channel whatever this guy is saying in his music, or something that you're seeing at a broader level in like the Toronto hip hop scene? Because yeah. it's a scene that I'm not familiar with, but it's certainly one that uh, seems like a very young and vibrant one. Um, the best way that I could, that I could describe that whole process is just, uh, totally organic. Um, and th there's kind of a mix of all three things that you mentioned. Um, 
really it's it's getting the vibe right first and foremost and being able to be in a room with these artists and on one hand kind of um be a force of nature in yourself with the camera and kind of have the ability to put the camera on them and they know you mean business and they're aware of it but also be a fly on the wall so they're not too aware of it and it's still them and it's still intimate for the viewer um and that, so I really, uh, I always overshoot. Um, you know, a more experienced filmmaker would definitely tell me I shoot too much, but I'm really looking for those little moments that happen that you can't really prepare for. It's more documentary, like Terrence Malick style shooting than like a high concept, let's get in a room and you stand this way and I'm going to put the angle of this. It's more, um, it's, it's more adrenaline and vibes and kind of just interacting with the person and the environment that you're in. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that word documentary because that's exactly the one that I was go, going to go to. Yeah. And I know that you use that a bunch in your the way that you describe your material, but these feel much more like documentaries than yes. they do like straight music videos yeah, because they there is mu as much... Um, you know, time just hanging out with these guys on the streets of Toronto and Montreal, yeah, yeah. you know, looking at their graffiti on, on the sidewalks or the skateboarders, or the sunglasses or the joints. I mean, yeah. it's as much about the way that these guys live in these streets and in this community as it is about performing a specific song. And then, you know, they're singing and they're passing back verses. Right. Um, but it feels, so you think of it, you're, you, do you kind of feel like you're making as much a documentary as a specific kind of encapsulation of a, a song? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, from from that point of view, it is totally documentary based, and the only difference is is that I know how to edit first, and that's how I learned. So when I'm filming something, um, in documentary style, I could still I'll say, all right, I have this angle, I can cut it together with this that I already shot two days ago, or if I angle them this way, or tell them to switch something in the hands for continuity, it's just little tweaks of things that might work and might add to it um and with the angles um it just it's like a little bit of a heightened reality rather than just putting the camera on somebody um like device style and and then the way that i edit it is just like total like ruthless as fast paced as possible trying to keep people's attention you know mm. everything pe people have no attention span these days so you really have to try to hit them over the head and but I think the editing is also of a piece with this music and with the kind of overall effect that you're trying to have here. Because, I mean, I can't, I mean, editing, I think editing for a lot of people who don't, you know, think day in and day out about movies is something yeah. that is not at the foremost of your mind when you're watching a movie. I mean, usually you see a kind of representation of reality in the images yeah. and then you're letting yourself be manipulated by the way that the director or the editor wants mm -hmm. to kind of point you. But for, I mean, there must be hundreds of edits and some, I mean, of, of just cuts in, in some of these movies oh, yeah. that you've made, if yeah. not, if not even more. And, uh, maybe just sit for us just one more second on, on that. What, what's going through your head when you're editing a, um, a video about, uh, Jigs the Flyer or any mm -hmm. one of these guys and what is the, I mean, you sit down at your computer and you have hours upon hours upon hours of footage. Yeah. I mean, what is what is that process like of going through it and figuring out, trying out what works and what doesn't? Yeah. I mean, I know it's kind of a, um, it's getting like the nitty gritty of making a movie, but I'm really interested when you have no, this, this many edits. No, this is my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> Tell uh, me about it. Editing, editing is absolutely my favorite part of the filmmaking process. Um, and I think it's the thing that's central to filmmaking in general. Um, everything else is borrowed from something else, acting as theater or modeling or, or photography. Or photography. Um, and manipulating the moving images is kind of, is, is just amazing in itself. And it's really easy for me just because I usually like the song that I'm doing so much. I could sit there and listen to the song over and over again and go through the, all the stuff that I've shot. And that's where I get to, you know, people might tell me that I overshoot. Um, so my process is I, I just go through each clip, I scrub through, and I take every single little moment that I think is cool, and I, I put it on the timeline one by one, and I try to memorize them as I go, and then I have like a timeline that I can scrub back and forth to quickly find all these simple cuts that I have. And that's like my paint tools. And then I have another sequence that I have the tr actual track on, 
and I kind of dump and play with them and I try a million things and it's a really tedious process. Um, and I just kind of shape and try to whittle it down from there. Um, it's not, like I said, it's not high concept. It's more like each thing kind of try to is balanced all cut according to how the camera is panning or, um, I might use a, a mistake I made as the cameraman or a mistake, uh, like, uh, dropping the camera or, or anything that that's is visually stimulating that could kind of give um I, rem- I remember going back there's we had this way back a, a few years ago we we had uh jigs it's the bible on the dash we're shooting bible on the dash and jigs uh pulled the camera down like actually interacted with it almost like a fourth wall thing and um everyone else wanted to cut it out except me and him we're because it looked it looked good and it gave a different yeah. like perspective to it um and also i mean it's i i recently um saw a movie called wiener about anthony wiener the kind of disgraced yeah. congressman yeah, from yeah. new york who uh ran this mayoral campaign in 2013 and yeah. it was kind of a resurrection of his political career and then it was derailed by another sexting scandal. But he hired an aide to make a documentary about his mayoral campaign. And it winds up being as humiliating an experience as, you know, we all saw playing out in the media uh, outside of that documentary. But at one point when the documentarian, you know, he's sitting in the car with him, he's asking him about um, about whether he has any regret or what he thinks, you know, is that the that really caused the people to turn on him whether it was the sex or the lying or whatever and he says you know i'm i don't know of any species of fly that talk but i'm sure that there's one out there because you you are saying that you're a fly on the wall cameraman but all you do is ask me questions, <laughs> ask me questions. and i feel like par- that's partly i mean i think he's totally right i think that yeah. the way i mean this guy who was purporting to just be documenting what he saw yeah. was actually engaging in in the story in some way and yeah. i tend to like that a lot because this isn't reality that we're watching right. this is a, uh, in some ways a fabrication right. of the person holding the camera and i really especially in this explicitly artistic environment like a music video um i feel like you are as much a part of this scene as the people in front of the camera so all to say i dig that that he pulled the camera down i think yeah. that's a cool touch yeah, I think it's yeah. worth leaving in um and i want to say you're listening to deep focus on wnhh lp new haven's home for community radio we're talking with mike rhodes a connecticut-based filmmaker um and mike one more thing before we leave the tribe worldwide uh, scene that i want to mm-hmm. ask you about is that often in the way that you describe these movies at least in what i've seen written as well as the uh the construction of these movies in terms of the opening kind of logo that appears mm-hmm. and then always it ends with either film by mike rhodes or maybe another yeah. you know look of the the tribe logo you say that you're trying to build a brand around a tribe worldwide yeah. um and i wonder one what that means to you to kind of be building a brand for a music culture or a right. subgroup um through these videos and also what that what is that brand that you're trying to build here so both like how does one do it and what's the brand that you see here for a tribe worldwide um well well, i guess first of all just to be a a freelance filmmaker you're kind of an entrepreneur in in yourself especially if you're trying to brand yourself in the way that i am and uh kind of have your own company and as far as the tribe worldwide stuff that has been so eye-opening for me as far as just the whole process of building a brand and having a logo and um, having brand name recognition and collaborating with other people and kind of uh, just reverting everything you do back to a certain brand and keeping it cohesive. Um, For example, uh, the video, um, the culture in the prohibition area, which you posted on Facebook today. um, These guys are all, interact with each other online you know they're spread out some of them are in ottawa some of them are in montreal some in toronto some in connecticut new york etc um so everyone gets together at certain times and participates in events or activities or, or just to record and get in the studio together but as a brand these guys don't particularly like it doesn't resonate for them unless they could see something so in that particular video that I just mentioned, every single one of them is in it at a different time. So that's like a two minute piece um, where 
everyone who's part of that brand, higher learning culture and tribe worldwide can watch that and say, oh, okay. Like now I know what the brand is. Now, now I know that this is a team and there's strength in numbers and um, everyone's talented and people can see that it's not just one person. Um, there's a lot of strength behind this. Um, and as far as just building, building a brand, uh, first of all, it's really hard and you have to be consistent and it's a, it's a long game. Um, you know, years and years have gone into this and developing it and fine tuning it and we've changed the name and, and, um, it started from just a, a two or three people and just an idea. And now it's, you know, there's all sorts of people repping tribe worldwide. And once you have that type of umbrella, that's where, you know, you could kind of, uh, branch out and have a free Wi-Fi brand and have uh, the tribe worldwide North or the higher learning culture. And everyone's kind of working together and promoting each other. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the way that the kind of brand of the tribe worldwide is integrated into the videos is that um, as someone, you know, who really loves like the, the art of the movies and yeah. thinking about that aspect as like a vehicle for like creative expression um, and really like any kind of media you consume, it's, I'm always hesitant to like recognize the kind of business aspects or the corporate aspects and yeah. the word brand, I think can make one put, put me a bit on guard because I think what, what mm -hmm. is someone trying to sell me? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that one of the cool things about the, the brand and the, the logo, um, and the, the different kind of groups that you're right, kind of putting under the umbrella of a tribe worldwide is that it's all a part of creating a new language that these guys are playing with like that symbol of the triangle and the yeah. wings that appears at the top yeah. of every video it's as much like fashioning the new language of this kind of hip-hop that they're singing um as much as the songs themselves or at least in like collaboration with the songs themselves so you see that logo you see it like tattooed all over Jigs's body yeah. and on the one hand it feels like what is this mysterious like conspiracy of symbols i don't recognize <laughs> but on the other it's like it's 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 all about like creating something new something like specific and unique to the people in these videos um i don't know i think it's a really cool way to integrate something that i may just on the face of it think is like again trying to sell me something but actually is part of the creative like world that these guys are part of yeah um so well, just my little yeah aside. and i mean i mean we we live in a world where at some point you have to monetize everything but i mean the main point and we do sell stuff using that logo but the main point is that you don't you know you could be tribal wide if you uh you know are living uh in that way or, or uh, want to think about things in that way and you like the music or you like the culture right. or, or whatever it may be it's not it, there's it's not like a click or excluding anybody it's right. just kind of like it is a culture so we've been talking uh, a bunch about a tribe worldwide and i'm interested well actually I, I know i said i that was my last question about it but i have one more question for okay, you yeah, about yeah. that and it's i mean what do you see as next for you in your relationship with these guys with this brand um, are you currently making movies with it? Are you like working on something right now? Or do you see yourself uh, kind of going back to them to keep building out this base of, of videos of, um, you know, of documentaries or yeah. music videos? Most recently, I've been working on uh, a group of other projects um, trying to build myself up because I, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit, um, spending a lot of energy on stuff when I, I think I could better help if I'm getting a little bit more recognition myself and if I have a little bit more money in my pocket in, to do these things. Um, and then I could invest and, uh, for example, I just worked on uh, I'm doing a series of basketball commercials for this brand called PPF Basketball. Um, and they're new and, and they're kind of giving me a lot of freedom to, to work with a lot of Work with a lot of cool people. Just keep it simple that way. Where are they based out of? Uh, all over Connecticut. Uh, I would say the greater Hartford area uh, specifically, but I, kn I know that they're, they're, they have basketball players out here that played for Hill House and Yale, et cetera. Um, so I, I produ produced and directed that piece, and I needed a score for it. So who am I going to go to? I'm going to Jigs. Um, 
So I shot it and I edited it without music and I sent it to him and, and we have a great working relationship. And I said, this is kind of what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm thinking without me having to say anything. He came up with a beat that fit the cuts that I had made. Um, and then we met up and talked about some of their PPF's brand speak and some of the copy that we wanted to use. And I talked about the name and we sat together and he kind of just freestyled a few things over the beat and we kept what we liked. And that's kind of, so he basically composed an original song, almost like a, a film would be scored as that type of artist, um, which shows you the versatility that, that we both have um, and how kind of you can, you, you can break those skill sets down and kind of uh, reach, reach out to those guys in the same way that uh, I'm doing freelance. This is the, the movie's called The Next Generation. Yes, right? yes. And yeah, I think this is the first one I watched of yours because it's the first on your Vimeo page because yeah. it's the most recent one that you've yeah. done. And uh, I mean, talk you, you write the, the um, continuity between the music videos and this one. It's not just in the music, but in the editing entirely. I mean, I remember yeah. taking note of the editing when just watching the basketball video and I hadn't seen anything else and then going to the music videos and thinking these are cut in the same way. Yeah, I mean, exactly. those sharp cuts, yeah. those cuts to black and then the kind of intense uh, mm -hmm. kind of close up on the face looking right at the camera. Um, it, it felt a lot like uh, the type of music video that you're doing for Tribe and in a really, you're, I mean, in a really cool way and in, in a way that, uh, I mean, because I'd watched those other videos, it brought like that, that context to it, but it was a different approach to making a, um, well, I guess what, what is it that you are, is this a, what is PPF? Is it a basketball camp? Is it like an after school program? Uh, um, they're just getting started. Uh, so right now it's a focus on having some summer camps and they're going to do individual training. Um, but I think in the long term, their goal is just to infiltrate the entire basketball community uh, statewide as far as having teams and leagues and, uh, you know, camps. And, and really they, they've assembled a, a vast assortment of past high level players, um, you know, that are kind of renowned for their leadership within the basketball community. And I, I think it's great because they're, they're going to be the ones that are training and around uh, the youth basketball players. And that's something that I, I definitely would have been involved with as a kid um, growing up playing basketball. So it's funny how things kind of come full circle. Definitely. I mean, so unfortunately we're running low on time this yeah. evening. This thing always flies, but yeah, I, I have a few more questions <laughs> or two more questions. Okay. One, one is about, any uh, New Haven-based projects that you've worked on or that you have upcoming or just kind of the, your experience with the city since we're in New Haven and this is nominally like uh, a show about movies in New Haven, but more broadly Connecticut. Yeah. But I know that you've worked on a couple of projects mm -hmm. um, in New Haven with New Haven people mm -hmm. about New Haven. Maybe tell me and the listeners a bit about some of those. Um, well, first of all, I love New Haven. I'm I'm wearing my Delmonico hat right now. Uh, <laughs> we're right next to the Delmonico Hatters. Um, but I think this is my favorite city in Connecticut. I just love it out here. And the most recent project that I worked on in New Haven, uh, was for the green light project, which the Yale humanist community put together. And some of my Hartford connections, they have a creative agency called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, uh, a close friend of them, that's why I bumped into you at the, the coffee shop that day, uh, Happy Life Coffee. And so I met with Chris Studman, who is of the Yale Humanist community. And basically the project that we did the video for was uh, to bring something to, New, to the New Haven Green during uh, the holiday season that everyone could participate in and reflect on regardless of your religion or religious belief, um, which is an interesting project and, and something that I think is, is really cool and a great opportunity to, to be here in New Haven and, and work with friends again. And, uh, and this is a sculpture that's going to go up alongside the kind of annual Christmas tree and yes, menorah that goes up. Yes. Actually, I should say Chris and Oni have a show on this uh, station. So they were just in here a couple of hours right, ago. All right. Um, so, uh, so they know when they, I, when I say it's those great. Names. I mean, okay. I, I love it. Yeah. Um, but no, that, uh, Greenland Project New Haven is definitely, I mean, so you made a few 
kind of promotional videos for them. Yeah. Right. Um, are you work? Is this like part of a larger collaboration with the humanist society or is this just one off thing? And then I'm not sure. see... it, as, of, as of right now, it seems like a one off thing, but um, I, I, I don't think I'd be wrong to say that we all enjoyed working with each other and we were happy with the result of it. And I would definitely be interested in, in doing work, more work out here and with those guys. Um, so I hope so. My last question for you, Mike, uh, uh, is about, so this is one that I try to ask every Connecticut filmmaker that comes through the yeah. studio. Um, and it's about what, uh, kind of what it, what it's like making movies in the state. Cause mm -hmm. we're in, uh, right in between New York and Boston. I mean, often this seems, uh, like a more affordable place to live than yeah. either of those two communities, yeah. but those have such a kind of magnetic pull for artists right. and, and for filmmakers in particular, that it's difficult to kind of carp to make, make the pitch for why Connecticut is a good place. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel it's not the best place for making movies, but I'm interested in hearing your take on what are some like challenges and benefits that you see um, for Connecticut filmmakers and yeah. what could the state do to be a more hospitable place for people like yourself? Wow. That, that is a tough question and a great question. Um, I would say it's definitely a challenge to, to work in Connecticut because there's not much of a film industry. So if you want to learn on set and be a production assistant and, and go the more traditional right, uh, traditional route, I'm sorry, um, then, then it's, it's probably going to be difficult. But, but that said, um, anytime there's something like that, there, there's also a positive to that. Um, so I would say there's not many people like me in Connecticut. Um, while there might not be the greatest outlet for me here, it might be easier for me to make a name here for myself than it is in Boston or New York City. Um, and just the fact that I am in Connecticut and can work here and I could travel to New York City for work and I do and I could travel to Boston uh, for work and I do. And a lot of the people that I know in the industry do do that and they think nothing of traveling one hour, two hours um, to be on set at five and six in the morning. That's, that's just what it is. If you love it and you're passionate about it, you're going to figure out a way to get it done. Um, and I, I mean, we could talk about tax incentives that might be great for Connecticut to come up with, um, to bring more, uh, film jobs here. But, um, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think as a filmmaker, you could focus on that, that type of stuff. You just kind of have to, by any means necessary. Um, and everything is so, so, so much online now kind of taking a lot of those boundaries out so if you're an entrepreneur and you go to certain companies around connecticut that are trying to compete and participate in in these certain spaces um you could really use that to your advantage and um it, if you look at it that way there seems like there's plenty of opportunities to be a filmmaker in connecticut and to uh stay busy and stay working Mike Rhodes is a Connecticut-based uh, director, cinematographer, editor, uh, freelance filmmaker, and thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. It's been a pleasure thank talking you about your me. work. Uh, where can people are interested in hearing about you know what you do, maybe watching some of your videos? Where can they go? Where where can they look? Uh, my website is whomikerhodes.com, just like you just like you would hear it, um, and all my social media and everything is at whomikerhodes. And like you said on Vimeo earlier, uh, all my recent stuff and, and pretty much every video that I would want you to see is on Vimeo and that's Vimeo.com slash WhoMicroads. Great. Well, thank you again, Mike. Thanks, Tom. You're all right. You've been listening to Deep Focus uh, on WNHHLP 103.5, New Haven's home for community radio. We've been talking with Mike Rhodes, a local filmmaker, and coming up next, a short conversation about Money Monster, uh, the new movie by Jodie Foster. But first... Let's hear a little bit of music.
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. We were just listening to a song by Ellison Jackson. Station manager Lucy, do you know the name of that song? Or are we just crediting Ellison Jackson? I was using the wrong microphone. Uh, yes, that is frontman Sam Perduda, who now lives in Philadelphia, but just released a new album with Ellison Jackson. It's the man from Lowell. Great. Or Lowell. Thank you, Lucy. That's how Midwesterners say Lowell. (laughs) And thank you, Sam and Ellison Jackson. So, Money Monster, the movie we're going to share a few thoughts on today. A new high-concept drama from director Jodie Foster, which tells the story of Lee Gates, played by George Clooney, a smug, desensitized, buffoonish host of a financial advice television show who's taken hostage, dun-dun-dun, by Kyle Budwell, Jack O'Connell, an angry young man who lost his last dollar on a bogus investment tip from Gates' show. Seeking to expose the hypocrisy and greed of both the financial industry and the docile media that fatten off of its excess and deceit, Budwell storms the studio with a gun and a vest strapped with homemade explosives. The rest of the movie unfolds as Gates and his longtime director, Paddy, played by Julia Roberts, seek to stall and placate Budwell, as well as figure out if there's any truth to his indictment of a rigged system. So, Lucy... Well, what, for, what, what, did you, what did you think of Money Monster? And also, what did you think of it in the context of movies like um, The Big Short, which came out to a lot of fanfare, both critical and popular, last year? Um, one that was a strong indictment of the kind of greed and absurdity of the people on Wall Street who were pushing these mortgage-backed securities and really fomenting the financial crisis. Um, and that I thought was an incredibly successful indictment of that system. Was Money Monster as sharp a critique as as that, or or is it trying to do something else? No, I, I really don't think it was. And, and one of the reasons is uh, film really is as strong as its writing. It's as strong as its cast to a certain degree, but also its writing. And the writing here just didn't hold, hold up. I, I think it was, there was a really um, interesting and exciting idea and critique of society that didn't fully play out in this movie. Um, I was pretty underwhelmed by the performance of Julia Roberts, honestly, and, and of George Clooney. Um, but, but really, I, I think this film was a testament to, uh, to lazy writing and a Hollywood industry that's really beleaguered. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm on the exact same page as you. I think that this was a real misstep of a movie. And I'm interested in maybe sharing a few of Alan Appel's thoughts because he, I think he liked the movie quite a bit more than either of we did. But in trying to understand, you know, why I thought this was such a miss, because in theory, it's one that is about a subject that I think is well worth making a movie about. And plenty of other movies have been made about in sharp ways. It's a criticism of both the media and the financial industry. Uh, Alan references kind of the 70s classics of Network and Dog Day Afternoon as two strong influences. And I think he's, I think he's completely right in that this is, um, it's, it's both a satire and a thriller. And I think part of the problem of this movie um, that is maybe at, at its core, it's with the writing, but ultimately this movie's tonally just all over the place. It doesn't know whether it's supposed to be tense, whether it's supposed to be suspenseful, whether it's supposed to be really kind of childishly comic. I mean, mm, the mm-hmm. unfortunately, the funniest parts of this movie, or the, the parts where I laughed a lot, were kind of outrageously out of place. There were, a character says balls over and over again. <laughs> um, there's a joke about erectile cream. And then, of course, there is a great uh, kind of cat video spoof at the very end. But those 
comedic elements seem, although they seem somewhat akin to the buffoonish character that George Clooney is playing in his kind of Jim Cramer, Mad Money-esque gallivanting about a stage with these big pimp outfits and waving dollar bills, you know, trying to offer advice on how to get rich, even though those kind of seem like they may be within the same world. This movie is ultimately like a high-pressure thriller with someone taking hostage of a studio, and uh, it it didn't it didn't feel tense. It didn't feel tense at all, and I'm trying to wrap my head around why it failed so hard on that element. Well, I I think in some ways the movie may try to be meta in that it's about this highly manufactured show run by someone who has millions, if not billions, of dollars in his own bank account. And, um, and, and his producer who is at, you know, we can assume like a big network and, and probably making a good amount of money herself. And ultimately the movie has that degree of like being highly, highly hyped up and manufactured, but there isn't the same degree of polish and thought put into it. And so again, I, I think you have these big concept ideas that don't play out. So, you know, when, when the team behind the big short was writing it, I think they sat down and they said, okay, we, we really want to talk about what happened when the bubble burst, when the housing bubble burst. And this is the same thing. If you think back to a documentary, like the queen of Versailles, um, which is extremely, extremely compelling. And I totally in, endorse for listeners. Um, whereas this, I, I don't think anyone sat down and said, I really want to look at, at the financial crisis and what's going on. And one or two things that, like one or two, um, not vendors, but, you know, uh, personalities on Wall Street that are really endemic of the problems that played out for millions of people across the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Because when markets here crashed, they crashed everywhere. And um, and I think the big short kind of breaks down the fourth wall in a very intentional way. And this didn't. Um, and, and the big short kind of takes risks. You know, you get someone in a bubble bath, you get, I think, is it Selena Gomez at like the poker table? And um, and I, I think that the writers and directors thought, okay, some people aren't going to like this, but some people really might. This didn't take risks. It felt like uh, like someone said, well, Julia Roberts really hasn't done anything for a while. Maybe we should put a headset on her and see how it goes. And maybe, I mean, I, I don't want to impute the intentions of the director or anyone involved in this movie, but when you have... Uh, such a scattershot tone and you're i mean the big short its tone is such a delicate balance between comedy and kind of horror at the way these people and absurdity at the way these people are acting um and it manages that balance really well but here um not only is it kind of scattershot in terms of the tone but also the shallowness of the characters and really the intentional shallowness i mean these are archetypes more than they are actual people there is the kind of angry (laughs) kind of somewhat stupid young man who is the mouthpiece for the audience who has lost his last dollar he's been taken advantage of by this this viper like industry you have the the media people who are supposed to be holding the uh the wall street bankers uh on account but in fact they're dressed in cahoots uh, and then i mean there are a few shots maybe involving some south african minor strike but those are really just to service the plot those are not anything that this film is actually concerned in investigating there's no um, documentary concern with, you're right, with what caused the financial crisis, with what motivates these people. Um, it's supposed to be um, maybe playing off of a very important but a very popular feeling right now of, uh, of anger with Wall Street, of this kind of populist uh, decrying of the elite institutions that take advantage of normal people. And uh, I don't know if it's enough for a movie just to be a mouthpiece for that sentiment. Um, if it's not really going to investigate any of the, either the causes, effects, or drama that takes place within the argument over, um, you know, disparity of wealth in this country. So it just kind of, well, and, flattened it, off and I think one of the things that we're talking around a little bit is this is a movie with a highbrow concept that was sort of marred by the many, many conventions of Hollywood. Um, so you've got this actress who has, you know, in, in the business, Julia Roberts is now considered old, which is an absurd notion. And, uh, and so she's coming back in this movie and, uh, or I I guess that could be an idea behind it. Um, and, uh, and it, I mean, it just didn't work. You kind of have this like weird love, kind of two parallel, uh, love stories that turn into love, hate stories. I, I mean, 
the one uh, really redeeming thing I thought at the end was, well, the cat meme, which was fantastic. Was it's so uh, it's sort of this, this rich banker who has lost $800 million jumping back and his face is compared to a cat. And I thought that was fantastic. I mean, I would watch that on YouTube like over and over and over again if it existed. Um, so that, but, but the fact that Julia Roberts and George Clooney, while there is a kiss on the forehead, don't sleep together at the end of the movie, because I totally thought that, that it, like, if it could have gotten worse, that is how it could have gotten worse. When you reference that scene, because you're right, that kid, I mean, this is like, I guess a spoiler alert, but this is where the movie ends. I mean, this movie that has been all about trying to critique the media and financial industry for the way that it exploits um, normal people. And then it ends on this sweet little kiss that George Clooney gives to Julia Roberts as if it doesn't really matter that the guy, the guy protesting and who lost all of his money is dead. He's dead. Uh, it doesn't really matter how many other people are exploited by uh, this rig system. You know, these two Hollywood faces, these Hollywood Rushmore icons are um, are going to be in a romantic relationship that may keep us intrigued for the... I don't know. It just really left a bad taste in my mouth. Well, and I, I mean, the, the other thing that I think you point to is there are interesting, promising moments and they go undiscovered. So, for instance, when the, the character who's been Lenny, the cameraman, who uh, sort of abandons all fear and follows George Clooney and the shooter character through the streets, you know, he, he doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive. So there's a scene afterwards where he's perched on the steps and he's talking to media. And it's the scene that could be a great, great critique of media and the role that media plays in both Wall Street and politics and political coverage that is so timely in a time of Trump, especially. And it it doesn't do that. You know, we, we don't get anything from that. And uh, and there isn't like there there isn't that much thought given to the fact that the shooter also ends up dead since you've mentioned it at, at the end of the movie. And I think, you know, I, I think under different conditions, this could be a very different film, but it, it left me with a sour taste in my mouth. This definitely feels like more of a missed opportunity than something that shouldn't have been undertaken, you know, from the start. Definitely an interesting idea, maybe only an idea and not really fully fleshed out as an actual film. But uh, thank you so much for sharing some thoughts on that, Lucy. I really appreciate that. Sure. Um, so you, that is Money Monster by Jodie Foster. Not really getting a recommendation from either of us, but um, thank you very much for listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP 103.5, New Haven's home for community radio. Uh, coming up next uh, at one o'clock, an hour with Alicia and Alicia's cocktail hour. 